Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a double homicide that occurred in 2016. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. The next step is we wait to see whether the state decides to retry the case. This fall, the Taafalusia brothers will be back on trial for murder a third time. I see a few people glazing over, and that this is the time when you start to because it's just such a weighty thing that you're going to deal with. And I'm like, do you realize there's three boys? There were seven of them there that night, seven of them that night. Seven. What about the other four? This is Epilogue Episode 10 from Season 2, The Verdict. I'm your host, David Payne. Killed and three wounded Tuesday night in a shooting near a homeless Deadly shooting in the jungle may be connected to a drug debt. Three teenage brothers were arrested and these 17, 16, and the youngest, just 13 years old. All right. Announcing the verdicts, I will pull the jurors, unless you don't want me to. Anything else we need to take up before I re and get the jury? All right, here we go. Let's bring up the verdict. Please rise for the jury. All right, thank you, everyone. Please be seated. And I understand the jury has reached its verdicts. Is that correct? Yes. Please hand the verdict forms to my bailiff. All right, the verdict forms appear to be in order. Madam Clerk. Verdict form A. We, the jury, find the defendant, James Taufelicia. It's the fall of 2019. And I'm back in yet another overheated courtroom for the third go-round of the Jungle Murders trial after two hung juries. This time around, we're in a traditional tile and oak-adorned courtroom in downtown Seattle that has been around for a hundred years and feels every bit its age. The new judge on the case, Sean P. O'Donnell, had to interview over 300 prospective jurors to find the lucky 14 who had the ability to serve on an extended trial and the requisite ignorance about the case. This third trial has been going on now for six weeks, and as I write this script, the jury is out deliberating. But before revealing the outcome, let's paint a brief picture of what has happened in this latest trial since we left you last. And as always, what better place to start than the openings? Thank you, everyone. Please be seated. Ladies 
and gentlemen, please give your kind attention to Mr. Hershowitz who will deliver opening remarks on behalf of the state of Washington. As before, the prosecution was led by senior King County DA's Steve Hershowitz and Mary Barbosa. Mr. Hershowitz would handle the opening arguments. It was about 20 minutes after 7 p.m. on January 26, 2016. Officer Joshua Rep of the Seattle Police Department was on routine patrol in the south end of Seattle. At that time, he was called to investigate a shooting that occurred around the 1500 block. As this trial got underway in late October 2019, it became clear early on that the state was largely going for a straightforward repeat of the evidence. Try, try, try again and all. But what was different this time around was that the parties were now so well-versed in their adversary's case that their own presentations were largely an advanced repudiation of the others. In legal parlance, it's called taking the sting out of an opponent's argument. But in reality, it came across as self-inflicted wounds. Tracy Bauer indicated repeatedly to anybody who would listen to her that an individual by the name of Juice shot her. Not 10 minutes into his own opening argument, Prosecutor Hershowitz was well down the rabbit hole of trying to explain away the defense evidence. First, telling a confused jury that one of the victims identified someone other than the defendants on trial. And Ms. Bauer is consistent. She has stated that Juice had shot her back in January 26th of 2016, and she still maintains to this day that an individual by the name of Juice shot her. As the... Hershowitz then began telling the jury that the state's own informant, Lucky, also identified a different set of suspects when he first spoke to police. Now, at this point, Lucky either went himself to the jungle or he started calling folks, and the word on the street at this point, according to Lucky, is that the Venus <coughs> So Lucky went out... Then he conceded the police didn't properly document their work. Now, one thing you should also be aware is that back in January of 2016, Detective Huber, who's making these communications with Lucky, didn't write anything down, okay? He didn't write it down. He's probably talking to a bunch of different people. You'll hear from Detective Huber. But he didn't write this down. So one of the and finally, Hershowitz would acknowledge that the quality of the state's most critical evidence, the encampment video, is horrible. The reason why it needs explanation is because it's incredibly difficult to hear. It's incredibly difficult to see who's talking. And it's incredibly difficult to sometimes get to the point where you're hearing things, but you're not seeing things, or you're seeing things, but not hearing things. This effort to dull the sting of the anticipated defense was an unusual strategic choice for the prosecution, as the simple narrative of two people being senselessly murdered by the defendants got lost. Mr. Hirschwitz, yes. I'm gonna have everyone stand up and stretch just for one minute. And before the prosecution could even finish its opening statement, down goes Frazier. The reason I have taken this break is unfortunately the jury were one who's fallen asleep at least six times by my count. She's right here. Oh, okay. Because there's one that is closing her eyes to listen. I, I think if I may be juror number one, okay. from my vantage point, she's lights out. My partner, Jody Gottlieb, was also lights out. She had moved out of state to take a real job. So I had asked a friend and former industry colleague, Celia Wu, to come be our second set of eyes and ears. And with that new perspective, I pulled her aside after the first day 
to see what she was seeing. So, this is your first exposure to the case. <laughs> you sat in on the opening arguments of the prosecution and the defense. What's your first impression? So, first impression, hearing the prosecutor and what his opening statement was based on were key witness testimony. And then the defense attorney comes up and says, it's all baloney. Essentially, that's what I got out of it. Yeah. I was confused by the ramblingness of both opening statements. Was that a fair assessment? It, a very fair assessment. And I was, very, and I was observing, even the defendants got bored. <laughs> I was watching there. I was, at one point, it just seemed like a lot for the jurors to really understand and take apart. I have a question for you. Do you think it was the confusion that caused the hung jury before? I think what caused the hung juries previously is that there's a lot of missing information mm -hmm. because you heard snippets of it in Dan Norman's opening about this beef between the Vietnamese and the Samoans. That, I believe, is the root. So that was actually a very interesting perspective for me as an Asian person living here in Seattle, right, to hear about this side of Seattle and the factions within Seattle and that it's, these are Asian communities that are involved in this underbelly activity. Yeah. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens on Monday when they actually have evidence and more importantly, when they actually have witnesses come. Unfortunately for both Celia and the jurors, Getting the witnesses to actually come to trial this time around would be something of a challenge. Despite the issuance of material witness warrants, most of the homeless would not be found, and the government was left having to read the prior transcripts of many witnesses in their case-in-chief. Ladies and gentlemen, you will now be given testimony from a prior statement under oath of Andrea Broussard. So even though this was a double homicide trial, frankly, the state's presentation fell a little flat. Thank you, everyone. Please be seated. Just need to put on the record. You know, I'll continue to do stretch breaks for the jurors. Juror number one, I didn't totally lose her, but she's been close to nodding off a couple of times. To be sure, it wasn't all boring. When it came time for the prosecution to present the prior testimony of unavailable witness Juice, the six foot seven, 300 pound Samoan male that Tracy Bowers says shot her, the state put on an Emmy-worthy performance by a preppy looking white guy reading his lines. Do you remember that as being a phone number that you were using in January, 2016? Yeah, it was one of my Obama phones. One of your Obama phones. So what does that mean, an Obama phone? Just a free Obama phone. And so how do you get a phone under this program? I was trading them for drugs. So the phone that you and while the rereading of the prior trial testimony literally meant a direct do-over of much of the case, the prosecution was able to round up a couple of witnesses who had, shall we say, some new epiphanies. The target of the shooting, Fat Nguyen, for instance, finally admitted he was a drug dealer. Is this the first time that you've told us that you were actually selling drugs out of the cave? Yes, I did. This is my first time saying it. And why didn't you say that before? 
I'm a mechanic. I don't really have a title. I speak all kinds of dope dealer. So you said you were a mechanic, mm -hmm. and you don't like people calling you a drug dealer. Yeah. And while Fat was finally willing to admit he was a dealer, Fat being Fat, he kind of couched exactly what that meant. Did anybody buy drugs from you? Yeah. I would call it share, but if you want to buy it, you want to put it in that way, yeah, I did. Okay. You said that you would call it share it, but you could call it buy it from you. Yeah. And then what did you do with the drugs that you bought? Then we all smoke it, and then people want to come buy it from us. We sell it to get the money, just to get enough money to buy food, or buy whatever we need, you know, gas, or dinner, the food, water, drink, cigarette. Yeah. Fats' belated admission that he was in fact some sort of Robin Hood drug dealer would be tested extensively under cross-examination by defense counsel Dan Norman. And just as the lawyers had assumed a certain familiarity with each other's cases, Fat and Norman would go at it like long-lost siblings as well. And then other people would come into the caves yeah. and would just buy it kind of like you see on TV. They hand you 10 bucks, you hand them 10 bucks worth of crack. Yeah, you want some of that TV though, Tim? Mm, fair amount. Trying to be drug dealer, Tim? Try what? Trying to be drug dealer, Tim? I'm just asking. You let. Like I said, I'm not a drug dealer, but you think I am. But if you watch the TV, you know, show you watch that the drug dealer look and do that shit. My bad. I'm not like that. I'm not like that. That's how I work on real life. You watch my TV, sir. And whether Dan Norman was watching too much TV, the jury would get its first taste of real emotion in this trial when the normally stoic fat was asked about his friend, murder victim James Tran. Mr. Nguyen, I'm showing you what has been now admitted as State's Exhibit 49, and you said that's James Tran? Yeah. When did you first meet James Tran? Probably October 2016. Uh, yeah, October 2015, yeah. Okay. So Still, it wasn't clear if the tears Fat were shedding were because of guilt at failing his friend or from the guilt of putting a conviction in jeopardy because of his failure to be candid. It didn't bother you to lie so many times under oath when you were asked if you ever dealt drugs or not? It does bother me because I'm not telling the truth and I have to live with it. Okay, so the guilt for lying under oath for the last... Three years. Three years has been killing you, something very difficult for you to live with. It's very for me to live every day like this, not just last three years, every day. While Fat would be finding it difficult to live with the lying, Tracy Bauer, the other shooting victim and Fat's number two in the caves, was finding it difficult to live, period. Tracy was so overwrought with the stress of having to testify again that she suffered a heart attack during voir dire, and she would be certified as medically unable to testify. With Tracy unavailable, a lot of the emotional impact of the case would be lost. And the state star witness would be Lucky, the self-proclaimed uncle of the defendants, and the guy who ratted them out to the police. Good afternoon. Can you tell us your full name and spell both your first name and your last name? Yeah. My first name is Hawaii Toto, like Hawaii. My last name is Toto. And do you have a nickname? Yes, ma'am. What is that? Lucky. 
Is it okay if I call you Lucky while I ask you questions today? Yes, ma'am. Lucky, how old are you? But having Lucky as a star witness was anything but fortunate for the state. You've answered questions in this case many times, right? Yes, ma'am. Do you remember how many times exactly? Probably like 100 times. Feels like 100 times, yeah. right? Might be slightly less. It wasn't quite a hundred times. It was seven. But the result was the same. Lucky had a hard time keeping his story straight, and the prosecution had an even harder time guiding him. Now, if you can look on line 13 of page 2708, do you recall being asked what you had reviewed in preparation for that interview? Yes, ma'am. And before this interview, had you reviewed any of the paperwork that had been generated in this case? Uh, yes, ma'am. Look, if you can look and see on line 16 there, do you remember saying that you hadn't looked at any of the uh, paperwork? Oh, yes, ma'am. Okay, you talked a little bit about having a hard time remembering things, and I think you attributed that to maybe that you smoked a lot of weed in your life. Yes, ma'am. Unfortunately for the defense, it wasn't just Lucky's memory that was bad. It was his complete willingness to say anything he had to to try and get off the stand sooner that would make him a very unsatisfying witness for their side as well. Now, look, you've been asked a lot of questions at different points about what happened in this case, correct? Yes, sir. Did you provide any answers that weren't true? I believe, uh, I mean, it's been a long time. It might slip here and there, but... Not on purpose? Yeah, not on purpose. Remember being interviewed in 2017 about this case? Uh, yes, sir. You testified very clearly that you were aware that Fat was a drug dealer, correct? Yes, sir. You knew that he was dealing weight, correct? Yes, sir. So when you said you didn't know Fat was a drug dealer, you purposefully were giving me information that you knew wasn't true, correct? Did I say that? Did I say that? I, uh, I didn't know that Fat was a drug dealer? Yes, you did. You said you had no information about whether or not Fat was dealing drugs. I didn't know that. That's out. Okay. Like I said, I smoke too much weed. You know, I be smoking way too much weed. And because Lucky was basically willing to agree to anything proffered or attributed to him, the judge himself had to step in to help move the case along. He's agreeing to everything you say, and yet it's a continual repeat of things you said differently in the past. If you can shorten this up, I mean, I think you're, you know, frankly, I'm not sure if the jury's with you. For you all, this all makes a lot of sense, and you're like, yes, he said it differently. But for these folks, again, I'm just looking at our jurors, who, you know, I, I, I'm sort of reading minds here, but I, I, I wonder if you're capturing them. And as a mind reader, the judge was pretty good. The jury was definitely lost on what Lucky was or wasn't saying about much of anything. And so, with a range of confusing testimony and actor-read transcripts, this trial would come down to how well the prosecution could tie together the defendant's own words on the videotape with the forensic and ballistic evidence from the guns recovered. And when senior prosecutor Mary Barbosa took to the lectern one last time, here's how she brought it home with unwavering confidence that she knew exactly what had happened that night and why. 
I'm going to talk to you about robbery because that is what was at the heart of this crime. That is by all accounts why they went up to the cave that night to rob Fat's camp. Now you know that the motivation in this case was robbery in two ways. You know it from the testimony of the victims and the witnesses and you know it from the defendant's own words. If Fat Wynn talked about money, And it was on this latter point, the defendant's own words, that the case would rise or fall according to the jurors. Which takes us back to 10.34 a.m. on December 12, 2019. Three years and 320 days after the shots rang out under I-5. Verdict form A. We, the jury, find the defendant, James Talcolisio, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree, as charged in count one. Verdict form B. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jerome Talcolisio, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree, as charged in count one. It would be a clean sweep for the prosecution. Somebody somewhere will return right after this break. And so it is written. All three Taufa Lucia brothers stand convicted of the murders of Janine Brooks and James Tran, and of the assaults of Amy Jo Chenault, Tracy Bauer, and Fatna Wynn. And according to the state, that is the end of the story. Nobody is suggesting to you that violent crime doesn't happen over drug territory disputes. I think everybody can think of examples, certainly in TV, movies, news, it does happen. It happens in reality. But that doesn't mean that that's what happened here. Fiction is often more interesting than fact, and it makes, in many ways, a more interesting story to believe that the defendants were somehow convinced by the criminal elders in their community to take the blame on a recorded conversation for a crime that they didn't commit. But that's not what happened. Whether Barbosa was right about what happened that night, that it was a straight-up robbery, or whether Tracy Bauer was right, that the boys were there that night for the purpose of taking the rap if it went sideways, neither scenario would exculpate them for their participation. Here's the presiding juror in this trial, Amy Sterling. I have no doubt that when Norman says that there's more to the story, that there is more to the story, and I will probably learn about it through your lovely podcast. But what was important to us was determining whether or not these boys were involved with the crime. What I concluded is that it is entirely possible that Juice was there. It was entirely possible that Juice could have orchestrated this entire thing. It could be entirely possible that James and Jerome and Joseph were the three bystanding boys that just were there watching. But it doesn't matter because if they were there and they agreed to do it, then they're just as responsible as whoever the shooter is. And that's what we kept coming back to was the 
was that one rule, the Article 9 or whatever it was. Accomplice um, liability. Yeah, the accomplice liability law. That's just what bit them in the butt. And that's what it that's what it all came down to. Because what that law states is that if you are found to be in cahoots with someone who is holding a firearm and they pull that trigger and you were there at the scene of the crime and you encouraged them and so on and so forth, then you were just as responsible for pulling that trigger as the person who actually did was. So you know now, after you've gotten home, that we had two prior hung juries, if you didn't know that before. I did. I did learn that, yeah. And so what was interesting in the last two trials, uh, they spent a fair amount of time out deliberating. And I'm wondering, when you guys got in the jury room, was it obvious that you were headed toward conviction, or did it take a while to get everybody there? It was very interesting, because up until the very final closing remarks, it felt like the majority of the jury was actually leaning towards not guilty. And the reason for such was that Mr. Norman had done a very excellent job at placing that seed of doubt in all of us. And when we went into the deliberation room, it was right after the closing remarks. And the prosecution's closing remarks were essentially just going over that video evidence one more time and just pointing out everything. And hearing them speak in that video, it all just suddenly fell into place. So at the end of the day, in the eyes of the law, it wouldn't matter that the boys may have been there just as lookouts or whether they were the shooters. And their own words, more than Lucky's, Fats, or Tracy's, would seal their fate. Yeah, I mean, it was really sad rooting for them and rooting for them to be innocent for like three solid weeks. We went in there every single day, four days a week, and stared at their sad little faces. And we're like, please, please don't be murderers. Please don't be murderers. And like... These boys were screwed over from day one, from being born to two parents that could not raise them sufficiently. And it broke our hearts to give this verdict. It really did. When we went back into the jury deliberation room after the verdict was read, half of us just burst into tears and all hugged each other. So, you know, it was a harrowing, harrowing process for us. And the gravity of the situation was very dire, but we took our jobs very seriously and we hold true to our decision. And unfortunately, the truth is just really ugly sometimes. This story in this case for me has been a challenge as well. And I've always been looking for where the hope is in the story. And I'm wondering if you found any hope in your experience on this jury. The main hope that I took away from is just the fact that the judicial system 
works as well as it can. And I really, really appreciate that we have a system in place that's been in place for hundreds of years and has worked for people in determining justice and determining the truth. And I know that it's not perfect, but I I really appreciate that that system is there. And I think it's really important to be a part of it. And if you get summoned for a jury duty, I would wholly recommend that you do it. It's such a valuable life experience and it's really humbling. As we wrap up the cables and put the recorder away this season, I am mindful of a few last things. No matter whose story you believe about what happened that night, everyone agrees that there were more than three people involved. And so what do we do about that? On the encampment video, the defendants say it was a kid named Boy and Ski and Bobby. Who's? Only three of you guys went? All of us went. One, two, three, four. And then Ski and Bobby. Who the fuck is Ski? The cops say they don't know who these people are. And since you've watched the video, you've said that. Do you know who... He is. I do, not. do you know who Bobby is? No. The thing was, Boy definitely existed. He showed up to the last trial down in Kent a couple of times. And Bobby? We first found him near the Jack in the Box a few months ago. But I also caught him again recently. On the local news the day they cleared out Uncle Francis's encampment. One man forced to move today tells us he hasn't had the best experiences working with the city. I've been out here for five years now on the street, and, uh, you know, they said they could help me. But the cop, he didn't give me the right, he didn't give me the address or nothing, you know, and, uh, and uh, when I tried to ask him for it, he kind of like, uh, you know, he, he kind of blew me off. And what if the cop didn't blow Bobby off that day? but asked him where he was on the night of January 26, 2016, instead. Absent a successful appeal, there will be no further retrials for the Tafu Lucia brothers. Sentencing will be held sometime in the early spring of 2020. The brothers essentially face life in prison, although Judge O'Donnell will surely take into account their ages and experiences. And my hope? It's that the boys can find a more meaningful life behind bars than the one they had in the jungle. Take me back to the jungle. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media in association with Warner Media. This podcast is created, written, and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Dayton Cole at Resonate Recordings. Editorial guidance provided by Mitch Gelman and legal services provided by Stuart Pearson. If you like this podcast, the best thing you can do to support us is to write a brief review on iTunes and share us on social media. You'd be surprised how these reviews can make or break an independent podcast like ours. 
I'd like to give a special thanks to Celia Wu, who jumped in and helped me cover this second retrial and produce this special epilogue episode. Thank you for listening. Take me back to the jungle.